0: Good morning, Canyon Hills. You know, in Paris at the Musée d'Orsay Art Museum, there's a painting that hangs on the wall that's entitled Checkmate. And art scholars and theologians and people from all around the world have traveled to this museum to study this painting. And as they've looked at it, what they've come to the conclusion in looking at it was that it appears there's a young man, probably in his late teens, early 20s, depending on his facial structure playing a game of chess against another man that's presumed to be the devil. And in looking at this leering and triumphal and rejoiceful look on the devil's face and this somber, downcast, and kind of emotional posture of the young man's body, it appears that he's lost the game. And looking at the board, you'll see that the young man actually put up a little bit of a fight. He was able to stop some of the devil's advances. However, in the end, he was still no match. And now he's out of moves. He has nowhere left to go. All of his strength is gone from the board, and he finds himself in a state of checkmate, that the devil has checked him. The theologians don't want us to admit also that there's this angelic figure that's kind of in the background of this image. And they surmise that that angelic figure is there because this isn't any ordinary game of chess. Rather, this is a game being played for the young man's life. If he wins, he gets to keep his soul. If he loses, well, the devil gets to take it. And by the looks of it, he's lost. There's a very famous story that goes with this painting about a chess master who one day happened to be at the museum. And he was looking at this painting, and he was immediately just captivated by it, feeling sympathy for the young man, knowing what it's like very rarely to actually lose. He wanted to see if he could study the board intently enough to trace back all the steps to see where the young man may have gone wrong or maybe what he could have done differently. So after an extended period of time of looking at this painting, he finally yells out loud, I've got it! Man, there's still one move that's left to be played. And if you play it, young man, surely you can beat the devil, forgetting that it was just a painting and that he's in a museum. And I don't know if that story is true or not, but I really like it because it makes me think that when I look at the world around me, when I see the terror The horror, the hurt, the hatred, the violence, the injustice, the pain, the fear, the suffering, the doubt. And when I look into my own life, and sometimes I see some of these things as well, I can't help but feel like I'm being checked by the devil. And when I look at the future generation of believers and churchgoers, when I look at our youth that are at this church and the world that they're moving up into, when I think about my own kids that someday will be growing up into this world, I feel like the devil's got me beat. I feel that no matter how many moves I make, how much I try, I always end up getting checked and now I'm out of moves and I have no strength left. But even though I feel this way sometimes, I never lose hope. And the reason why I don't lose hope is because I know without a doubt that there is one above us who is looking upon our chess game of life and is yelling to you and me, you still have one move left. You have one move, and if you make this move, surely you can beat the devil. And that move is Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the best move that you could make. Jesus, as awkward as it sounds, has all the best moves when we think about it. You know, Jesus started an amazing movement in his very own lifetime. He dreamed up, he envisioned, and he developed, and he started formulating this group of people that would eventually become the very first church and he taught them on things on how to stand against the devil, how to love one another, and how to survive and make this world a better place. And this model of teaching, this feeling that it left inside of them, man, it just lit them on fire. And you know, fire is something that has always fascinated me. Because with the simple flick of a finger, friction can form and send a spark from match to tinder, And soon a small flame starts growing around the edges, And it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, being fueled by wood and by air. And soon heat starts to build up and it becomes licked by orange and red tongues of flame. And bigger it gets and whiter it grows, consuming everything in its path because it's a full force fire and not much can put it out. You know, almost 2,000 years ago, there was a spiritual fire that started in Palestine. And at the very beginning, it was a very small, localized fire. Just a few people were able to see and feel and embrace this fire, but they just had something inside of them that told them that we need to spread this. We need to get this out. So they ended up taking it, and they went beyond and into Jerusalem. And once they were in Jerusalem and kind of beyond that, more and more people started kind of seeing it and figuring out what was going on, and it made its way into Judea. And once it was into Judea, they still thought, man, more and more people keep coming. It's growing, and it starts to move through Samaria. And once it got through Samaria, man, nothing can put it down, because it was headed towards the ends of the earth. And it was a fire that couldn't be stopped. See, Jesus started this fire with a very small spark with a model that he left behind that grew and grew and grew until it got so far, so expansive that nothing could stop this. And it became one of the greatest fires in all of history. And living here in California, Yerba Linda, we have some pretty crazy fires, don't we? So we know what this could really be all about. And the reason why I tell you this and I bring up this story is because I'm so excited to tell you that over the next pretty much 25, 26 weeks, all the way through the rest of this year and beyond, we're going to be traveling along this fire line. We're going to be studying through the book of Acts to kind of see really what this early church was all about, what this movement was that made the people so on fire that they wanted to take it beyond Jerusalem and all throughout the Roman empire and even to the end of the world. And one of the reasons I love reading from the book of Acts is because it truly does give us this eyewitness account to the flame and to the fire of this early church. The passion that grew inside of them and how these disciples were bent upon it, not holding it in themselves, but taking it all throughout the world and how the Holy Spirit, it empowered them to teach to preach, to pray, to do miracles, to go into the synagogues, in the marketplaces, in the homes, in the schools, in their jobs, to go on the roads, on the hilltops, in the streets, to go on the ships, that whatever they went, lives would be changed by this fire. Lives would be touched by this. And as we look at the book of Acts, we're gonna see things, amazing stories like the ascension and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're going to see amazing conversion stories of people who wanted absolutely nothing to do with Christianity becoming huge supporters of Christianity, one of them being a man named Paul who tried everything that he could to stop it but eventually would become one who would fan the flames even further through the Mediterranean region. It's crazy. We're also going to find sympathy, and we're going to find hope, and we're going to find joy in seeing the fact that these first Christians, these first believers, the very first church, they struggled as well. They had hardships. They had obstacles. They had difficulties that they encountered every single day along the way. And we're going to get a chance to see how they responded and how they were able to overcome them. So I hope you're as excited as I am as we're going to be jumping into this series because there is so much amazing stuff we're going to be able to glean from the book of Acts. So my goal today is just to kind of give us a summary of where we're going with this series and then try to cover the first 11 verses. Not too much, just to kind of whet our appetite and build this fire inside of us. So if you have your Bibles, please open up to Acts chapter 1, as we'll be reading verses 1 through 11. And as you're turning there, I'm going to kind of give you one more background piece of information. This book was written by a man by the name of Luke. And we know that Luke was a physician. He was a doctor. And being that as his occupation, he was very good at taking detailed notes wherever he went. And the book of Acts is actually the second volume of his writing, the first one being his own book called the Gospel of Luke, right? So if you were to take the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles and put them together, it would equal about 35 feet long on a scroll, handwritten. That's a lot of material, more so than any other gospel writer because Luke had a lot to say. He had a lot that he wanted us to be able to understand about the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. And so he wrote the Gospel of Luke, and then he titled his second book, The Acts of the Apostles. But I believe this is a little bit of a misnomer. And if you're not a grammar major, a misnomer is something that's inappropriately named. And I think that it should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit because that's really what we see start to take shape here. How the disciples were empowered by the Holy Spirit to take this movement into the world. But that's a whole other sermon for a whole different time that we don't have time for. So let's go ahead and just jump in this morning. We're going to start by reading the first three verses. So you can follow with me or read it up on the screen behind me. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions to the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So right off the bat, what we see here in just these first few verses of the book of Acts is it's giving us a link from what really happened in Luke to Acts. It covers this 30-year period after the ascension of Jesus Christ. And we start to see how these disciples, they started to really grab a hold of these teachings and wanted to spread it throughout the world. And they weren't these major, magnificent, mighty people with high positions or authorities. No, they were average people. They had weaknesses. They had frailties. They had shortcomings. They had fears. They had doubts. But we see that they were empowered by the Holy Spirit to go and proclaim this message. And so Luke is giving us this bridge, if you will, between what we see in the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ and the beginnings of the church, what happened in between. And he refers back to this 40-day period after Jesus had resurrected, when Jesus called all of his disciples together and he began to teach them a little bit more in depth. And he taught them all kinds of amazing things like the kingdom of God, how to love one another, how to survive in the world. He taught them about the Holy Spirit. He convinced them of his resurrection. And it made them want to dive in even further, that they wanted to take it and just tell everybody about what they were hearing. So what was he actually teaching? Well, that's what Luke kind of tells us in the next passage. But before we get there, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk really quick about the recipient of this letter. See, Luke writes this letter to someone named Theophilus. Now, we don't know much about Theophilus. There's really only two mentions of him, one here in the book of Acts and one in the book of Luke. And what we do know is that if we start to study and look up the name, the name Theophilus actually means one who loves God or friend of God. And so some theologians take this definition. They say, well, if it's one who loves God or friend of God, maybe Theophilus isn't a person, but rather a group of people. And if that were the case, it would make sense because this whole book, this whole writing is all about the very first believers coming into faith and starting this church. So what a better way to illustrate, to write something than to list them as a, hey, you who love God, this is what you're supposed to do. But some theologians also look at it and say, well, in the book of Luke, Theophilus actually has a title addressed to him. It's almost excellent Theophilus. And this specific phrase in the original language was a title that was reserved for people of high authority positions, which means that if that's the case, Theophilus would have been someone high up in the Roman government, maybe like a Roman official or a Roman officer. But either way, whether you believe it's a person or you believe it's a group of people, the point here is that Luke is writing to people, persons, groups, saying, look, this is what Jesus's life was all about. But even more so than that, Jesus is about to leave, and this is what he wants you to do with what you've heard. And so he's leaving these detailed descriptions, these detailed instructions of Jesus' words so people would know what to take and how to take this message to the world. So what was this message? Well, let's continue reading in the next part here. It says that starting in verse number four. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. You know, Christ's conversion and his conversations with his apostles must have been amazing. I can just imagine them just hanging on the edge of their seats, listening to every word, taking in everything that he had to say. I mean, he had just died, and now he'd been resurrected. He had left them, and they're just eating as taking in as much as they can from him. And as he's teaching them, they're just so excited. They probably stayed up all night long, just wanting to be with him. And I'm sure they had all kinds of questions. Why can't we leave Jerusalem? What is this gift the father has promised? What is this different baptism that you're talking about? But in the midst of all of their questions, Jesus kind of stops when and he says, hey, let's go up to the Mount of Olives. And we don't actually read that here in the book of Acts, but we do actually see it in the other gospel stories that Jesus and his disciples, they travel up to the Mount of Olives, and I don't think they question him. I don't think they were hesitant, saying, man, you know, Jesus, it's late, we're tired, we really don't want to travel, because the last time they left him, he, he died. He was crucified. So they probably didn't want to leave his side. They didn't question it, they just went. And once they got there, Jesus picks up and starts teaching again, and more and more questions start flowing. What's next, Jesus? These teachings are great, but what do we do now? Where do you want us to go with this? What information do you want us to really start to live our lives by? And then Jesus hits them right between the eyes. So let's finish up this passage, verses 6 through 11, a little bit longer, so bear with me. It says, when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the father has set by his own authority. This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Wow. These are Jesus' final words on earth. Or 2,000 years ago, Jesus was here and he was teaching and preaching and he said these words and then he left. And there's been silence since then. And I like to think that the silence is intentional because Jesus really wants us to take in what his final words upon the earth were all about. What he really had to say to all the believers, what he had to really dig deep, and what he has to say is so clear for us. And this is it, folks. He says, this is what I want you to know. This is the mission for you. This is what I'm leaving you. If you want to be a believer in Christ, if you want to profess to follow me, this is it. It's clear. There can be no misunderstanding. It's black and white. It's laid out for you. This is what I'm calling you to do. And we find it in verse 8. Once again, it says this. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And how exciting is this? You want your life to really count? You want to really be a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ? This is it. This is what he's called us to. And there is nothing more exciting. There is nothing more joyful than helping someone get to know, get to love, get to serve the Lord, get to have a personal, deep relationship with him. There's nothing greater than watching people have their lives transformed and come to know the Savior as their personal Lord and Savior, to receive that gift of salvation. There's nothing more exciting than watching a church become on fire for the Lord because that's what he's calling us to do. This is what he wants for us, to go to be his witness upon the earth. How amazing is that? And so as we kind of conclude The first 11 verses this morning of our series, I I don't want us to leave without really kind of taking a few minutes to ingest those final words, to really process what it is that Jesus is calling us to do and what he's laid out black and white for all of us. And it's just so important. I've created some spaces on your outlines for you to write them down so that way we can put them on our fridge, put them in our cars, write them in our phones, go wherever we can, because this is what Jesus has said to us. So what is it? Well, first off, look at this. First, Jesus, he gave us a mission. Jesus gave us a mission. And what is that mission? Well, the mission is to be a witness. The mission is to be a witness. And I know that that word witness can kind of be daunting to a lot of us, but simply what witness really is, it's to share the story, to share the good news of Jesus Christ, to share with him everything that he's done to say, look, Jesus Christ came down from heaven to live upon the earth, taking on flesh of man. And when he was here, he saw the brokenness, he saw the suffering, he saw the sin, he saw the hurt that controlled people's lives, so he sacrificed his life so we wouldn't have to deal with that. And then he beat death by rising up again and going into heaven where he became exalted. And now he sits on the thrones of heaven offering this same free gift of salvation to you and to me, saying you no longer have to be held captive by the sin, by your fear, by your doubts, by the brokenness that you think controls you because I've already beat it. I've already paid for it. Your debts have been wiped clean. And I want you to be with me. But I think it's so much more than just words too. I think that being a witness is also about how you live your life. And I can tell you that one of the most effective ways that I have found to share my witness with others is simply by telling them about what Jesus has done in my life. Telling them the stories of how Jesus has changed me, how he's healed me, the things that Jesus has done, the ways that I've seen him move in my life because people see that and they want that. They want to feel that same kind of love. They want to feel those same moments of transformation in their own lives and they'll do whatever it takes to get it. And they'll want to find out what can I do next? And that's when the door opens and you truly begin to share your witness with others. But that's not it. The second thing, he didn't just give us a mission. second is that he gave us a vision. He gave us a vision. And what was his vision? Simply that this witness, this message, this mission would go to the ends of the earth. That's the vision. That there would be no place on earth that has not heard the name of Jesus Christ. Scripture says, Therefore, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever should believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. You see, God doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to have a chance of salvation. The only way that that's truly going to be possible is if we take this mission. And we take this witness to the ends of the earth. Once again, in verse eight, it says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witness in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I can just imagine the uh, disciples, their reaction when Jesus said this. You want us to go where? In Jerusalem, you were just crucified there. In Judea, they chased us out of there. They hate us there. They'll stone us if we try to go back there. In Judea or in Samaria, huh. you want us to preach to the half-breeds, to the people of different races than us? Whoa, the ends of the earth? The Gentiles? Huh? But the disciples never questioned. They never had doubts. They never went this direction. Instead, they said, We'll go. You tell us where you want us to go, and we will follow. And it's so cool, because of their obedience, we read that they went in Jerusalem and they started praying, they started preaching, they started healing and doing miracles, and in one day, 3,000 people came to know the Lord. That is the vision of Jesus Christ. That people would be saved by hearing his good news. People would accept this gift of salvation in their lives. It's amazing what we see there. And I know that this could sound like a lot, man, we've got a mission and we've got this vision, but I'm not equipped. I'm just an average person. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a teacher. I don't like this whole evangelism kind of thing. Well, God gives us one more thing. He says, I'm not going to leave you by yourself. He says, I'm going to give you a provision. I'm going to give you a provision. And what is that provision? It's the promise of the Holy Spirit. He says, I'm going to empower you with the Holy Spirit so that you can accomplish the mission that I've laid out before you. And after he said these words, he was gone. He ascended up into heaven. And the disciples, they didn't waste any time. We know that they immediately went into Jerusalem. And as we're going to see in the next couple weeks, they started praying and fasting, and they waited 10 days. At the end of these 10 days, the Holy Spirit came upon them like tongues of fire, and it lit them up. It caught this fire inside of them. And they were so passionate, they were so overwhelmed by this movement that they just couldn't help but share it to the entire world. They wanted to spread this witness because they knew that's what God had called them to do. They knew that's where God wanted them to be. That God had given them a mission to spread their witness to the ends of the world. See, folks, I truly do believe that it's time for me It's time for you, and it's time for this church to be caught on fire for the Lord once again. To feel this spiritual fire that moves in such amazing, mighty, powerful ways that nothing can extinguish it. To see a a fire rip through Canyon Hills Friends Church that brings people to Christ, that breaks down denominations or races or barriers or injustice, that it would truly start healing brokenness and make transformation into Jesus Christ where we would see people come and come and come, not because we're Canyon Hills, but because the world knows that Christ is proclaimed here. That we live out our lives as a witness for the Lord. I believe it's time that we start this fire again in our lives. And that means that we start to be a witness for Jesus, that we take it into our homes we go into the schools, we go into our workplaces, when we travel, wherever we go, that our lives would be a witness of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus wasn't ashamed to stand up for you. Jesus wasn't ashamed to lay his life down for us. What are we willing to do for him? Are we willing to spread this word of God to the ends of the earth like he has called us to do? Or are we just going to sit idly by? In the words of Marvin Gale, can I get a witness? Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we are just so, God, we are so honored. God, we are so excited. God, we are so joyful and just overflowing with the fact that you have given us this amazing opportunity Father, that you have imparted this amazing responsibility to each and every one of us, that you would use us as your vessel of truth. Father, that you would want to use us even though we're broken, Father, even though we struggle. Father, even though we may feel like we're not much. Father, that you know that we are exactly the people that's needed to change this world. Father, I pray that we would just become lit on fire once again. Father, that you would just fill us up with this spiritual fire that not even the devil can put out himself. Father, that you would help us move into this mission, Father, this mindset of being a witness that everywhere that we would go, Father, that we would just praise you. Father, that we would just love you, to love others, Father. Father, I pray that we will not leave this place today without hearing your calling in our lives. Father, you have called us to be your witness to the ends of this earth. Father, help us achieve your mission. We love you, Father. We pray this in your name.